What do you think is happening in the world? Who are the major players? What battles do you think are taking place? Who is on your side? Who is the enemy? Think about that. What are the battles? Who's on your side? Who is the enemy? Maybe you think something like the Bilderberg Club is running the world. What is the Bilderberg Club? It's an annual, unofficial, invitation-only conference of around 150 guests, most of whom are people of influence in the fields of politics, banking, business, the military, and the media. Each conference, of course, is closed to the public. It sounds like a James Bond film. It is a very real thing. Many Americans have been a part of this meeting. In a book by Lithuanian author Daniel Estulin called The Secrets of the Bilderberg Club, Estulin accuses the Bilderberg Group of, quote, manipulating the public to install a world government that knows no borders and is not accountable to anyone but itself. What do you think is happening in the world today? Who's having their way? COVID-19 has certainly given us a, a host of new conspiracy theories in regards to our own government, in regards to China and more. What's going on? Who's running things? As you think about that, consider this warning from Jesus to the church in Smyrna. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Let's pray. Father, would you be with us this morning that uh, what we hear today is your word, nothing more, nothing less. We have come to sing the gospel of your salvation through death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. May we leave here today, Father, believing in power, believing in your power, believing in your life everlasting, greater courage, greater conviction, and all the ways that we need to repent. Father, would you help us to repent? And all the ways we need to continue on in faithfulness, would you help us be strengthened, encouraged, resolved to that end? We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in the book of Revelation, and in Revelation we are in the section where Jesus, like a gardener and like a priest, is tending the lampstands, that is, the seven churches. And he is going from church to church to church, representing the church in this age, addressing issues that each church is facing that we as Christians might know and understand the times that we are in and the things that we are about to face Look there in chapter 2, what Marilyn read for us, chapter 2, verse 8. And the angel, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. We didn't talk about this last week, but I want to give some time this morning to who these angels are and what is really most important in these two chapters, chapter 2 and 3 in Revelation. Let me say this about the angels. It doesn't really matter very much who they are. They are fairly anonymous to us, and it seems on purpose. Are they the angelic creatures that we see around the throne in the next chapter? Are they the angelic creatures that we see delivering messages throughout the Bible, like to Mary? 
Since the word angel is just the word for messengers, does it mean that they are the pastors of the seven churches themselves? I want to say to us, it matters very little. The author of Revelation does not go into any great length to tell us who these angels are. What we do know about them for sure is this. Jesus holds these angels in his hands like stars. Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. When John sees Jesus, he sees seven stars in his hand, and he refers to them as these angels. Whoever they are, they are in Jesus' hands which means Jesus, not the angels, are ultimate. Jesus, not the angels, are all-powerful and all-wonderful and protecting. Most importantly, where does this message come from? If you have that style in your Bible, you'll see that these words, these letters to the churches are in what color? They're in red, because these letters are Jesus' words, beginning back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. Jesus did not stop speaking to the church back in the Gospels. Jesus did not stop guiding the church even through Acts. Jesus is speaking to the seven churches. He continues to send this message to us from heaven through vision to John. The most important thing about these messengers is not who they are or their power, but on whose authority they come and whose message they carry. Jesus Christ himself To the angel, chapter 2, verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right, same thing to all the churches. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. These are the words of the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. Who is the author of the letter to the church in Smyrna, the letter to the church? Jesus Christ, who was in the beginning with God and was God. Jesus, through whom all things have been made. Jesus, who died on the cross for sins of men as the Lamb of God, but has now returned to life. Jesus will never die again because death has no dominion over him. This is not a newspaper article about today's events. This is not a self-help book about how to get along with the world. This is not theories or tips for how to live a good life. These are authoritative words from the one who has died and now lives for his people, the church. These are words, as it were, you can take to the grave. What is happening in the church in Smyrna? What's going on in Smyrna? What does Jesus see? How does he care for them? In short, true Christianity in Smyrna is being separated from a previous culturally and religiously comfortable home base. True Christianity is being separated from a previous culturally and religiously comfortable home base. For some time in its earliest days, Christians were considered a sect of Judaism, Just like the Pharisees had their beliefs and the Sadducees had their beliefs and they were all a part of Judaism, the Christians had their beliefs and it seemed like Christians were also just a part of Judaism. What did this mean for Christians? It meant that they could enjoy whatever status the Jews enjoyed with Rome. If they were considered part of Judaism, they could enjoy all of the deals that had been made between Rome and Judaism. What did that mean for them? 
The Jews were not always forced to recognize Caesar as God. Instead, Jews were permitted to make sacrifices toward Roman emperors merely as earthly rulers. So as long as the Jews were giving allegiance to Rome and they stayed in their lane, they were tolerated and taxed. So for many years, Christians enjoyed religious protection under the banner of Judaism. But now what is happening? Now the Jewish establishment is starting to clarify to the Roman rulers, these Christians are not with us. These Christians are not really Jews. In fact, these Christians are not a part of any synagogue at all. They don't gather for synagogue. They don't answer to any of the Jewish rabbis. They're on their own. And see what the Jews were saying about the Christians in the passage. What were they saying? Look at verse 9. Jesus says, I see your tribulation, I see your poverty, and the slander of those who say they are Jews. That word slander is really what word? Blasphemian. Blasphemy. The Jews were considering Christians to be committing blasphemy because of their faith in Jesus. Jesus had claimed that he was God. Remember when Jesus was asked in Matthew chapter 26 if he was the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus answered in the affirmative, quoting from the Old Testament. And then it says, Matthew 26, verse 65, the high priest tore his robes and said, same word, he, Jesus, has uttered blasphemy. Why does this matter? If the Jews say the Christians are not with us, then the Christians are culturally and legally left on their own to face Rome as a new religion. It's not just that they were slandering them in the sense that they were being mean to Christians in Smyrna, saying mean things about them in the news. They're leaving them out to dry against Rome. Since Rome did not permit any of their colonies to establish any new religion in Judea. It meant the Christians are now on their own to face Rome with no social or any political protection. Rome would not tolerate new religions. It's a way for them to protect having to bother and squash new insurrections, new uprisings. The Jews, however, had been perfectly subdued. They had been put in their place. Remember when the Roman governor Pilate asked what the crowd should do with Jesus. He said, shall I crucify your king? What did the crowd say? We have no king but Caesar. But Christians won't say that. Christians won't say that. 
Christians will say, we have a king. We have the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and his name is Jesus. They will not join with the Jews and acknowledge any authority on earth or in heaven but Jesus Christ. Well, that is exactly the kind of talk that will get you your own cell in a Roman prison. You don't have to imagine much to consider this happening anywhere in the world today. Do you think that this is so dissimilar to Christians in our time, in our land? Christians used to be under the umbrella of cultural, political, religious majority. But that is not so prevalent as it once was in the West. You may have heard the name of a pastor, James Coates. If you haven't, let me share. James Coates is a graduate of the Master's Seminary in Sun Valley, California. He is a young pastor, a father to young children. He pastors Grace Life Church in Edmonton, Canada. In December, his church was fined $1,200 for gathering against COVID policies. Local authorities accused Coates and his church of gathering at over 15% of their capacity, which was the local COVID health policy. They continued to meet and in January, police sent their church a closure order. And then in February, declining to accept the conditions of a local court, James Coates turned himself in and was jailed for five weeks until his release on March 22nd. Then in April, as the church hoped to go on gathering knowingly in rejection of local orders, the police arrived at their church, removed everyone from the church building, and erected two metal fences, two different layers of fences around the entire church property, encircling the entire church property twice, putting a multitude of officers and squad cars at each entrance and exit. Varying reports have come out since then about different events, the taking down, the putting back up of the fence. But at one point last week, a huge crowd gathered together and sang, shouted some at each other, some at the police. Most of them were not even members of this church. But a crowd so large, you couldn't even fit them into James Coates Church at one time, COVID policy or not. Why? Why are these things happening? Have we seen anything like this in America during COVID? Sure we have. A pastor in Florida was arrested for a breach of COVID health order. Likewise, North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California has been fined $112,000 for holding in-person meetings. The church finally decided to quit holding in-person meetings. The court will not forgive those charges. Calvary Chapel in San Jose, California, has been fined $1 million for gathering. 
Pastor Mike McClure said, I respect the judge, I understand what the laws are, but there's a bigger law. The Calvary, Ch Calvary Chapel Network isn't just some cuckoo cult out there. I know because my brother leads worship in that network of churches. That alone doesn't mean they're not a little cuckoo, but just means I know a little bit about their church. Even a well-known pastor, John MacArthur's church, Grace Community Church in Los Angeles, California, was fined $20,000, $10,000 to MacArthur himself personally, $10,000 for the church as a whole. For what? For voluntarily gathering together for worship during COVID. I've mentioned before, months past, Capitol Hill Church in Washington, D.C. sued the city because the church was being singled out amidst COVID policies in comparison to other large group gatherings. Now hear me, am I saying that churches in each of these situations were always right to oppose every court order? No. Am I saying that there aren't some charlatans and sensationalists out there who just love the spotlight and the television coverage and the personal gain more than their church? No. Am I mourning the loss of the good old days in America? Absolutely not. But these churches are mostly simply faithful churches who long to be together. And some of them have faced this kind of opposition for decades. As a pastor, he's watching our culture develop, watching American politics as we've seen them, known them in the past, essentially unravel. I think it's fair to say that things that we thought once were inconceivable are simply not so unbelievable anymore. The list of things to which pastors are willing to say, you know what, it would not surprise me if any longer. Fill in the blank. Today, many businesses' employees are required to refer to other employees by their preferred pronouns. This is prevalent in Austin. Simple statement about what it means to be a man or a woman. What happens when you don't go along with that? Should Christians go along with that? We've seen cake bakers be sued because they're asked to participate in a wedding which goes against their conscience. We've seen our Supreme Court go both ways in the recent decades, supportive of religious liberty and at other times severely threatening it. In his book, Intolerance of Tolerance, D.A. Carson not a man, I think, ever accused of being a sensationalist or an alarmist, gives miscellaneous examples of a sort of passive intolerance in our culture. In 2005, a bank in Manchester, England, asked a Christian organization to close its accounts because its views were incompatible with the position of the bank. In 2002, one of France's most respected contemporary writers was taken to court by four Muslims because he said, Islam, Islam is the dumbest religion. Now, I don't think that's the best choice of words to talk to anybody or any religion. But that, would that hold up in court as a racial insult and inciting religious hatred as he was accused? We've seen cases of conscience like this in various fields, in education, in medicine, the media, and more. We've seen cases like this in Austin. We've seen cases like this in our own jobs, in our own schools. Sadly, the debate about Christianity today in the culture is not, is it true, but is it offending anyone? Do we even need to hear 
this message from Jesus today? I think so. And I think if we stop and observe what's going on in the world, that we increasingly feel it. We feel the tension. We feel the pressure. What can I say at work? What can I say at the dinner table? What can I say with my friends? What can I say to that fellow employee or my customer? What are the consequences if I do that? What might it cost me if I say anything? If we are thinking that way, what has already happened? We have been removed from a place of cultural comfort. We're there. The church is increasingly being, quote, slandered. What was once a comfortable position of influence and majority is dissolving. It's a conversation I've had with Christians often. What can I say at work? What will cost me if I speak up over and over and over and over, I've had this question discussed as a pastor with members of this church. Churches in the West today, I think, are more like the church in Smyrna than we might first imagine. And here's what Jesus says to you, church, verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. The slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Maybe this is no mystery to you. You've already endured tribulation as a Christian You've already had a job pass over you because your worldview or some statements you made at work didn't fly. Maybe your family has begun to think that you are crazy and reject you. Maybe your family is telling you that you are on the wrong side of history because you are holding some views that are in cohesion and in faithfulness to God's word. Jesus knows your tribulation. Jesus knows that. The word for tribulation there means most essentially to press and to put pressure on. And Jesus sees you under pressure. He knows. And Jesus knows your poverty. Have you not many possessions in the world? Jesus says, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Luke 6, 2. Jesus says, I know your poverty, but you are rich. You may have nothing in the world, no career, no possession, no home, no money to count at night, but you're actually rich because all the blessings of the spiritual places have been given to you in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Jesus knows the slander of those who claim to be Jews, those who claim to be the people of God. And what does Jesus say of those who claim to be Jews but slander you, blaspheme you, they are actually a synagogue of Satan himself. 
This is ironic because one of the ways that the Jews in Smyrna could prove and, and proclaim that Christians were not a sect of Judaism would be to show that Christians were distinct in their meeting and their gathering and their allegiance, that they are not part of a Jewish synagogue. They have no Jewish rabbi. That, that would have been an ultimate insult and claim to Christians. You are not a part of the synagogue. And Jesus says of them, they are a synagogue of Satan because they reject me as king and as crucified and resurrected Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus speaks this way about the rejection of himself more than once through scripture. Matthew chapter 16, for the first time, Peter calls Jesus the Christ. Peter refers to Jesus as the one. Who do they say that I am? Peter says, you are the one, you are the Christ. And then Jesus begins to add to that and say, you're right. And now the Christ is going to suffer and die at the hand of the religious leaders, but he will rise again. What does Peter say? No, 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 Jesus, I'll never let them get you. No one's coming between me and you. You will never, we're never going to let that happen to you. And what does Jesus say to Peter's opposition to him going to the cross? Get behind me, Satan. That's satanic to keep me from this purpose. In John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking to a crowd of Jews. They are claiming that Abraham and even God is their father. Therefore, all the rights and privileges of Israel are theirs. But Jesus says to them, if God were your father, you would love me, Jesus for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he who sent me. Why do you not understand? Because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. There's not many more haunting words than this in all Scripture. Jesus knows all things. Jesus sees all your struggles for faithfulness in His name. Jesus sees and knows the difference between those who are trusting in Him with their lives unto death and those who are only taking on as pretense the name of God as Father and as the people of God in some religious practice. Which are you today? Those who would like to participate in the religion and claim to be God's people while actually rejecting him, denying him before men, not truly trusting Jesus in their heart for their sins on the cross and his resurrection from the dead to never, those who will not trust that and would cast out true believers in their lives, Jesus says to them, you're a synagogue of Satan. He's having his way and his worship in that temple. What it means to be a Christian is to trust Jesus Christ with your life and be willing to endure whatever cost may come 
for declaring and proclaiming his name and your faith in him forever. This is not a shock if you read the New Testament. John the Baptist was beheaded. Paul was imprisoned many times and ultimately martyred. James, the head of the church in Jerusalem, was killed in Acts chapter 12. We could go on. It's not strange. It's normal. What happened in Acts just after Peter receives the Spirit and begins to preach that salvation is found in Jesus alone and that the Jews missed it? And that they are the ones who killed the Son of God, the one who now lives. Bam, Acts 5, off to you, to prison. What happens to Peter later after James is killed in Acts chapter 12? Peter is arrested and put into prison. Paul and Silas are ministering in Philippi. Paul's commanded a demon to come out of a slave girl. And when the owners find out that this slave girl is no longer under their control, they drag Paul and Silas to the court and accuse them of, quote, customs which are not lawful for Romans. Customs which are not lawful for Romans. And then Paul and Silas were beaten over and over and thrown into prison. In fact, when Paul tells his testimony in Acts chapter 26, what does he say? Acts 26, verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I voted for them to die. And I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. I tried to make them say Jesus' name so that I could catch them, put them in prison. And in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He goes on to tell his testimony. I was going to a foreign city named Damascus to do that very thing. But Jesus met me. Friends, Jesus knows what it's like to go to your workplace. Jesus has foreseen what it's like to be a member of your family. Jesus knows what it's like to be a member of a society and a culture, and maybe even a religious movement that's leaving you out to dry. Jesus said to his disciples before he was crucified, Luke chapter 21, he said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, Then there will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Jesus is not taken back by our troubles. He knows. And he knows what Satan will do next. What's next for the church in Smyrna? What can they expect next after their tribulation and their poverty? Chapter 2, verse 10. I see your tribulation. I see your poverty. I see the way that they have slandered you. But don't fear what you're about to suffer. I see that, but watch this. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Maybe you were listening to the radio or watching television, and you've heard that 
familiar screeching, high-pitched alarm, followed by the familiar message, this is a test of the emergency broadcast system. That sound usually does the job, no matter where you are. Perks your ears up, you are wondering, is this a test or is something going on? Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, you're going to be thrown into prison. Why? That you may be tested. Prison isn't even the ultimate cost. For Smyrna, it was just a test. Prison's not the culmination of all faithfulness. This imprisonment, Jesus says, has a, has a day numbered on it. It's 10 days. This is just a test. This is to see what, what's in there. When, when, when God allows his people to be tested, it's often intended as evil in Satan's schemes, but as a means of sanctification and revealing and for good in God's schemes. But like all suffering Christians, 10 days, just but for a little while. And Jesus knows who is behind this. Jesus knows who in the world is acting this way. Notice Jesus does not blame the Jews. Jesus does not blame the Romans. What does Jesus say? The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. The devil himself. Friends, consider the very first question that you were asked this morning in our sermon. What do you think is going on in the world today? Jesus has just said that Satan is going to throw some Christians into prison. Satan is going to throw some of you into prison. Like when Satan sought permission and it was given to him to test Job and Job lost everything. Like in Luke when Jesus told Peter, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. It was Satan who entered Judas, which led to Jesus' betrayal. Paul notes that Satan is out there trying to outwit Christians in 2 Corinthians 11, disguising himself as an angel of light. Paul even tells the church in Thessalonica, I wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered me. Satan is working in your world. Satan is working in opposition to Christ's church. Peter said it this way, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Be firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Satan in Smyrna, that's what he does. Jesus said of the devil, he was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. Who is the Christian's great opposition in the world? It isn't your neighbor. It isn't America or Rome. It isn't mostly and certainly each other in the church, despite how much we might fail or bite each other. It isn't even the other religions in the world who disagree with us 
Jesus says explicitly, it's not even the Jews who slander you. The devil will throw some of you into prison. Paul said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly places, in the spiritual realms. But if Satan puts us in prison, even if we have no cultural, no political shelter, Jesus tells us not to fear this test. Don't fear losing your job. Don't fear going to prison. Don't fear not being welcomed back to your Thanksgiving table. Don't fear your neighbor saying something to the HOA, God forbid. Don't fear, don't fear whatever test you might be thrust into by Satan himself. Hebrews 10 says it this way, you've all went to prison and you've supported people in prison, but you still have need of endurance on the other side of that. So Jesus says to you, he says to the church in Smyrna, be faithful unto death. Not just prison, but through prison, be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You may lose every earthly comfort and possession. Be faithful unto death. You may lose your life. You will be crowned with life. What cost might Satan be allowed to test you with? A job, a friendship? The comfort, awkwardness, it's just a test. Faithfulness is for our whole lives. How might you be tested this week? Conversation with a neighbor. Conversation at work. A conversation online. Go to prison if you must. Remain faithful unto death. Jesus is the first and the last Jesus has died and come to life. He does not always promise freedom from Satan's schemes, but he does promise freedom from the second death. Satan can put you in prison. Satan may even usher you into the first death, that is the death of your body. But since Jesus has risen from the grave, having canceled the payment of sin for us, for all those who trust in him, for all those who trust in Jesus as King of kings, Son of God, Lamb crucified for sin, resurrected from the grave. For all who give their allegiance to Jesus, chiefly, supremely, and solely, the second death, the spiritual death, cannot hurt you. It can't hurt you. The death that you would have to die for your sins after you die, that death can't hurt you. When you go to work, when you go home for the 4th of July, when you're given a moment to deny Christ or to boast in Christ, <clears throat> know that no matter what happens, even if your blood is spilled and your veins are drained dry, they cannot take eternal life from those who are in Christ 
Jesus. I can't take it. So remain faithful unto death. Some of you are going to be thrown in prison. Some of you are going to lose jobs. Some of you are going to lose more things than the discomfort we've already been through. Remain faithful unto death. There's a great song. Not a friend like Jesus. There's not an hour that he is not near us. No, not one. No, not one. No night so dark that his love can't cheer us. No, not one. No, not one. Jesus knows all about our struggles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. Behold, Satan is going to throw some of you into prison. Behold, Jesus has the keys to death and Hades. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your grace today, for your mercy to us, for your faithfulness to us. We have faced, we are facing, we will face challenges from many fronts, from Satan himself. Some of us will face harsher tribulations. We rest in this one true promise that those who conquer will not be hurt by the second death. That those who are in Christ will receive the crown of life. That you have died. That you now live. What can man do to us? Father, would you help us to have a sober resolve. Whether it's a little girl or a government. To speak your name when we're asked. To proclaim your name to the nations, even when you are denied. Would you empower us to be faithful unto death? We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.